The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. We're taking a little break from the Psalms, and we're doing a one-off in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3. And this has always been such a powerful text for me, even though it's so short, this passage. And in this text, it's really important for the letter because Timothy, or excuse me, Paul, gives the reason that he writes the letter, why he writes 1 Timothy in, in these verses. But what's the reason? Why is he writing it? Well, look with me if you have the Bible in front of you. Verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Okay, so Paul is currently absent from this Christian community. He's been delayed in coming back to see them. Paul doesn't know if he's going to be able to return and see them. He doesn't know what tomorrow brings. And so he sends Timothy in his place to this community with a letter to show them what? To show them how they are to live as a community. How they are to interact with one another how they are to view one another, how they are to treat one another as the body of Christ. And in these specific verses, Paul doesn't give maybe what we want sometimes, which is the nitty-gritty, right? That that on-the-ground wisdom. He he doesn't give specific instructions, uh, but rather he reveals to them who they are. And also he reveals to them the glorious good news that they possess. So, I I don't know about you, but for me, in this season, with all its complexity, I need to be reminded this morning who we are. I, I need to be reminded, once again, who Shades Valley is, who we are as a people. I need a otherworldly, supernatural, God-given vision of the church. I think if we are going to be a community, if we're going to be a people that in this season bear witness to the beauty of of Jesus Christ and in the love of God, then we we must be a community that meditates on who we are, who the scriptures reveal us to be. Okay, so that's that's all I want to do this morning, is I simply want us to meditate together on who the scriptures say we are in this in this text. So first Verse 15. So Paul writes to the church, and he says that the church is the household of God. The household of God. Or I think we could say the family of God. 
the family of God. And so I imagine most of us know this. This is nothing new. You go to Romans 8, you go to Galatians 4, and you see that by grace, through faith, you and I have entered into the multifaceted, diverse family of God. God is our Father. We've been adopted by His love and grace. We know Him as a good and loving Father, and we are what with one another? Brothers and sisters, right? Brothers and sisters. We're, we're, we're family. Okay, so I, I worry a little bit at this point. Why? Be, because I think the language of family can be a little stale for us in, in our modern time uh, because we're constantly inundated uh, from corporations and institutions and service providers that say things like, hey, when you're here, you're family. Burger King, when you're here, you're family. You're part of, you're part of the BK family, Right? Uh, even my, my beloved alma mater, Auburn University. All right. We're what? We're the AU family. Hey, when you're in Auburn, it's all about what? Family. Family, family, family. Everywhere, everybody says that you're part of this family, right? And so I, I think we can roll our eyes a little bit because... If everything's family, every community, every group, every service provider, then, then really nothing's family, right? So this is where I think in, in our current modern world where the family has been branded, branded for, for marketing purposes, I think Joseph Hellerman's little book, when, when the Church Was Family, is a gift to us. And he shows something that's really interesting to me. So, in the book, Hellerman argues this. He argues that in the world of the New Testament, the closest family bond in society, it wasn't marriage. It was what? It was the bond between siblings. Isn't that interesting? And the most treacherous human act of disloyalty was not disloyalty to one's spouse. It was the betrayal of one's brother. Now, I bring this before our attention not to say that we need to return to this ancient society's values. I could see some siblings in here looking at each other, kind of shaking their heads. <laughs> Um, I'm not saying this is kind of the blueprint for the, f the family that we need to return to, but I bring it to our attention so that you and I can fully grasp the, the gravitas of what Paul is saying when he looks at this diverse group of people that have come together in Jesus Christ, and he says, you are now brothers and sisters. Do you, do you see how striking the language is? If you read the Testament, you will find that the English equivalent of brothers and sisters 
is, is found around 140 times in the New Testament. And most of the time, it's referring to the spiritual family of God, just over and over again. And you can go and you could read and you can look at when Paul is addressing conflict and, and disagreement and division in the local church. And again and again and again, you know what he does? He says, brothers, brothers and sisters, I appeal to you. Over and over again, 1 Corinthians 1.11, look. For it's been reported to me about you, my brothers, by members of Chloe's household, that there are quarrels among you. Over and over again, he appeals to them as brothers and sisters. He says, your family. You need to remember that. And, and, and so I wonder, if in this particular season, with all of its polemics, and all of the outrage, and all of the division, could we at Shades Valley, can we sit down with one another as brothers and sisters. As brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters that disagree with one another? Yes. Brothers and sisters that are frustrated with one another? Yes. Does anyone in here have a brother or a sister that you've ever been frustrated with? Uh, Brothers and sisters who are imperfect and have failed one another? Yes. No doubt. Brothers and sisters who who have wronged one another? Yes. No doubt. But the conversation has to start with, you are my brother in Christ. You are my sister in Christ. And that shapes everything. Shapes everything. Can we be shaped by the reality that God says in his scriptures? We talk about speaking the truth in love a lot, right? And often when we use this language, we're referring to what? We're referring to evangelism, or maybe we are referring to speaking Christian truth that we think isn't going to be received well in our society. Maybe it will offend someone, and so we say in these instances when we're communicating that we need to do what? We need to speak the truth in love. But do you know where we get this phrase from? It's Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4.15, Paul says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Uh, Excuse me, into him who is Christ. Uh, The context is the church. It's the body. And so I'm not saying we shouldn't use speaking the truth in love in this other context. No, I think that's, that's good and helpful, but it's just interesting to me that the context is Ephesians is brothers and sisters, uh, uh, not people-pleasing, right? Um, not gossiping, uh, not writing each other off, um, not being completely devoid of, of conflict or, or difference, but doing what? Um, sitting down with one another and what's the end goal? The end goal is building one another up in the faith. That, that's the end goal of this conversation. So the conversation begins with you and I 
acknowledging that we're brothers and sisters in the faith. And then it ends with what? The goal of being built up in the faith, speaking the truth in love. And so, I mean, Shades, we're a family. This church is not an NFL draft where we get to pick our, our kind of ideal team or, or our fantasy football thing. I don't do fantasy football. Um, I've tried before, but then I, I'd never commit and fill in the teams and everyone gets mad at me. Anyway, right? I mean, it's not a, this isn't a draft where we pick our ideal team of, of who we want. We're, we're family. And, and as family, we don't get to choose our siblings, And because of that, the church is something that's so beautiful. It's people that sometimes we would not choose to interact with otherwise. But nonetheless, by the grace of God, they become our family. Okay, one, the church is the family of God. That's who we are. And number two, what's Paul say? He says that the church, this is the church of the living God. Okay, so the household of God, the church of the living God. Uh, Here, Paul is is emphasizing, I I think, God's presence among his people. Um, God's active presence in and among. In Paul's day, the way that God dwells in and among his people, uh, sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Uh, Other religions have holy buildings. Uh, Other religions have physical structures, temples. You want to find God? Do you want to worship him? Do you want to offer sacrifice? Well, you go to this place, and there you will find him. There you will experience his presence. But one commentator wrote, for Paul, God is to be encountered not in special places, but in a special people. God is to be encountered not in special places, but in a special people. In in Ephesians 2, Paul writes that in Jesus Christ, and and this is a glorious truth that really has become an article of faith for me. In Jesus Christ, we are being joined together. Joined together, brought together. Why? So that we can be a dwelling place, a fit and appropriate dwelling place for God by His Spirit. And you know what this season in particular has shown me? And this is experiential, I profess, but Often, this bringing together work is painful. Often, this drawing together work, it, it hurts. It's, it's not uh, an Instagram picture of us having dinner together. Right? Although I, I love those pictures. Please keep posting them. It's hard. And, and why is it hard? Because for us to be brought together as a community where God dwells, then we must be a people that die to ourselves. We must be a people who die to an individualistic life. 
And that's hard. That's, that's, that's difficult. But, but the beauty of the gospel and, and what the gospel did in the world of the New Testament is, is that it brought Jew and, and Gentile, it brought wealthy and poor, it, it brought people from every nation and tribe and, and tongue, and it made them what? One people. Where God, <clears throat> where God dwells. And I think in, in this season, what has sustained me is that Ephesians 2 says that it's God that's bringing us together. <laughs> now that's good. Why? Because that means that God has not left us to our own devices <laughs> to figure it out. He is working to bring us together. I've always been struck by these words from Eugene Peterson. These words that come from him are words that can only come from a, a, a long life of obedience to God and, and faithfulness to a local church. But Peterson says this. He says that there, there was a shift in his ministry. And the shift happened when he started seeing that people were not problems to be solved, but holy members of the temple of God. Whew. People are not problems to be solved, but they're mysteries, Peterson says. They are, they are holy members. They are vessels in which God is active and present and moving through on earth. And Peter says that changed his ministry. What if we started seeing one another, not just as brothers and sisters, yes, that's good, but also as holy members in the family of God. Okay, lastly, Paul says that the church is the pillar and buttress of truth, okay? Church is the family of God. Church is the household of the living God. We're a temple individually, corporately. God is active and present here by his spirit. And the church is the pillar and buttress of truth. What does that mean? Well, I think that, that Paul uses this architectural metaphor, this language, to, to show that the church is to be a steadfast support for the truth of the gospel. I think the architectural language is used to communicate that the church is to provide a steadfast support for the truth of the gospel. Now, this, this, is, this is breathtaking to me. Because it means that God has entrusted the church with, with all of its imperfections and, and all of its failings with the most beautiful and glorious news that there is. And that is the news about Jesus Christ. I love what the poet and writer Dorothy Sayers says in regards to this. She says, God underwent three great humiliations 
in his efforts to rescue the human race. Okay, three great humiliations. The first was the incarnation, when he took on the confines of a human body. First humiliation. Second humiliation was the cross, when he suffered the shame of public execution. What's the third humiliation? The third humiliation is the church. In an awesome act of self-denial, God entrusted his reputation to ordinary people. To to us. (laughs) Wow. Now, as I reflect on this, and I I reflect on Dorothy's words, I I just get this pit in my stomach. And why? Because, because I'm, I'm well aware with the failure of the church uh, th- throughout history, I'm, I'm well aware of the evil that the church has committed by individuals and institutions. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's a pit in my stomach. But I, I think even more so, I, I am so aware of my own weakness. It, no one knows my heart more than I do, right? I, I am very well aware of, of my, my own failures, my own failures as a husband, my own failures as a leader at Shades Valley, my own failure as a friend. God has entrusted his reputation to ordinary people. And so if I'm, if I'm being honest with you, and this, this just kind of came to me a few times this week. It can make me feel really hopeless. It can make me look at God and go, really? <laughs> like, yes, I'm going to get up and I'm going to say that we're the family of God. Yes, I'm going to get up and I'm going to talk about the church as, as the holy temple. But really? God, this is the means that you've chosen to reveal your glorious good news to the world? It can feel so hopeless. And this is why I need verse 16. This is why we all need verse 16. Well, Paul writes what? We can look. He starts by writing, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery uh, of godliness. Okay, so what, what's the mystery? What's the mystery? It's, it's Jesus. That's the mystery. It's, it's Jesus. It's the plan and purpose of God that was once hidden and now is, is revealed to us. How do we know that? Well, if, if you look down to the following lines, uh, there are these words that have this hymn-like character, character to them, and essentially it, it tells the story of Jesus. It doesn't list his name, but it tells his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his glorification to the, the right hand of God. And so it's almost like here at the end, Paul is saying, great indeed is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Um, great indeed is the gospel that takes broken, messed up people, forgives them of their sin, and takes them from being individuals to being a community that is joined with God in sweet communion and empowered by his spirit to take his good news of the death and resurrection and glorification of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Great is that story. This is our, our true story. This is the story that shapes every other story. So don't for one second let the church's failure and weakness be the grand narrative that shapes everything else. Don't let conflict and division be the grand narrative that shapes everything else. Don't let your sin and your failure be the grand narrative that shapes everything else. Don't let the struggles of this season be the grand narrative. Don't let any other story in this world get the last word other than the story of Jesus Christ. The church may appear foolish. The church may appear weak. But when I look at it through the grand narrative of Jesus Christ, I see that God uses the weak to shame the strong. I see that God uses the foolish to shame the wise. I see that his power is made perfect not in strength, but in what? In weakness. I see that when we are weak, we are strong. I see that there is only one person that the church is supposed to boast in, and that person is Jesus Christ. And when I look at the story of Jesus, I see that though he was crucified, and though he was seen as weak and nothing to be looked upon and worshiped, nonetheless, through his resurrection, he has been lifted to the right hand of the Father, and the world is seeing his true identity, that he is God. And that reality that we know in part that every tongue and uh, every knee will bow will one day be a reality. That he will reveal himself and he's doing that now. And who has he chosen to do it through? A church who appears weak. A church who appears foolish. A church that so often fails, but a church nonetheless that is his family. A church that he has sanctified into a holy place where he dwells. A church that has been given the best news in the world. Do we believe that? I, I don't always. <laughs> Do we believe that we've been given the greatest story in the world? We are a people whose story is worthy as the lamb who was slain. And we walk by faith, but one day that faith will become sight. One day we, as the people of God, will be together and we will see that everything that we've said that has sounded so insane is true because Jesus is Lord So my prayer is that God would empower us with the Spirit to live out that reality. That God would empower us by his Spirit to see everything that's happening through that narrative, through that story, the story of Jesus. May he empower us to do it.
Amen.